I'm Bill Bupert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome aboard to episode two of Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast. This is Bill. I wanted to title this one Anti-Fragility and Irregular Warfare, but we're going to concentrate on counterinsurgency and insurgency and the balance thereof. A couple of housekeeping notes. I've really been encouraged by the number of people who listened to the first episode, and I wanted to talk to you just a bit about my craft in coming up with what I need to do for these episodes, reading appropriate and things like that. I wanted to provide you with a very interesting notion that I use to study. So there's too many books, so little time. So what do I do with nonfiction books to determine whether they're good or not? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts on books. I listen to a lot of podcasts on military history. When I read a nonfiction book, I do something that some may consider rather strange. That would be I read the last chapter first, whatever nonfiction book that I read. It does two things for me. Number one, it lets me take a determination on whether the book's worth it or not. I get a sense of the writing style, the adequacy of footnoting, the adequacy of use of primary and secondary source documentation. But more importantly, what it does is it summarizes for me what the author is trying to get at in two, three, four, or 500 pages. If I take the decision that the book is worth reading, once I begin reading from the beginning, I have an edge, I think, because I have an idea of what the author is trying to get across, what his visionary framework is, and what details and bricks he's going to use to erect his house, as it were. I also wanted to remind everybody that until I get a website set up, you can get in touch with me with critiques about this podcast, recommendations, book recommendations, those kind of things, at cgpodcast at pm.me. So with that, we're going to move on to anti-fragility and irregular warfare, and we will be concentrating on counterinsurgency and insurgency. So what say you is anti-fragility seems like a rather odd term. Well, it is. Nassim Taleb, the statistician, market magic man, and writer who wrote a book on black swans, who wrote a book on anti-fragility, and a number of others in what he calls the Encerto series, which is Italian for uncertainty. He's brilliant, and I suspect that he discovered this, didn't invent anti-fragility. Anti-fragility, to quote Nassim Nicholas Taleb in Anti-Fragile Things That Game From Disorder, anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. Now, we're going to go down a path here where I'm going to describe to you what all this is about, the anti-fragile fragile framework, before we start talking about conflict. So with that, I'd like to quote him once again, and that's simply, anti-fragility is defined as a convex response to a stressor or source of harm. I'm going to stop right there, because when I go through this paragraph, 
it'll put everybody to sleep. The lids will lower and people will turn off and stop listening. So I came up with an even better way to describe it, which is, in simpler terms, anti-fragility is a system or a complex of systems that gets stronger over time when exposed to anticipated and emerging stressor vectors. The caveat is presently particular variability. All those two words mean is that small things matter a lot in large systems and they ripple across in large systems to cause both intended and unintended consequences. So in order to really illustrate this concept, I'm gonna step a little bit outside of conflict in a regular warfare, and I'm going to emphasize to you, or illustrate as it were, not only the historical case for existing anti-fragile ecologies, but also to give you some examples of what it looks like. Again, I quote to Lev, anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better, end quote. I just said that a little bit earlier. I'm pounding my foot on the floor to make sure that everybody gets that cut. What this means is that, let's take a for instance here. In Antarctic and Arctic regions, when we employ radars, we put radar domes over them because of the wind velocity and the, savage, the savagery of, of, of winds and the climate in those areas. What was discovered, thanks to Buckminster Fuller, I urge all of you to look up his name and examine what he's contributed to the, uh, the intellectual state of the 20th century. Very interesting guy. He came up with Fullerian geodesic domes. These are the domes that you may occasionally see on the side of the road where somebody has built a house that's shaped like a dome. In the case of domes over Antarctic and Arctic radar sets, the reason they do that is because these domes do a very curious things, a very curious thing. Picture the dome as getting a microburst on one portion of it. When that microburst, let's say at 150 knots, hits that one portion or the entirety of that dome, that entire dome equalizes that pressure equally across and around that entire dome therefore reducing the total magnitude of the pressure to smaller portions that the dome can protect. Now, if the dome were levitated off of that radar set, one can envision what a radar set looks like, perpendicular to the ground, a very large square sail-like structure, does it have the capacity to spread that microburst or that wind that goes across the entire sail of the radar Without the dome, it does not, and it would collapse the radar set. So as a result of that, one can imagine, how does one use sailing ships, whether fighting sail or conventional sail? Well, they are able to move. Well, if a radar set in, and the radar modality is plugged into the ground, it's not going to move anywhere but 90 degrees flat onto the ground and be destroyed. The geodesic dome helps to distribute the stressors so that under stress, it becomes stronger. So what are some real-world examples of this that I could use to illustrate everyday things that are anti-fragile? I would suggest to you that free markets and price signals are a great example of anti-fragility. Most of us know that centrally planned economic systems, Soviet systems, Western systems that have unfortunately adopted Keynesian, Marxist, modern monetary theory, 
and monetarist financial frameworks with fiat currency are very fragile, and they are very subject to the smallest ripples of change witnessed 2008 and 2009 to ripple throughout the entire economy. Free markets and price signals are a way in which anti-fragility instantiates itself across the board in human observation and experience. What we see is that price signals, by the way, this service is delivered by billions and billions of producers, consumers, and everybody in between who provide the free service of telling you through price signals the scarcity or abundance of a given commodity. Hence, what that means is that price signals Disciplined yet unfettered by central planning apparatus, whether at the state level, the federal level, or the global level, will eventually equilibrate themselves. So if something becomes more scarce, the price goes up, depending on elasticity and inelasticity. It's beyond the scope of the talk that we're going to have today for me to describe those words. I urge you to look them up. But what it means is that economically, the more centrally planned a mechanism is, the more fragile it becomes. I want you to keep this in mind because this is very important for the discussion we're going to have today for a very simple, yet I think elegant thesis that I have, which is this. I suggest that most, if not all, insurgencies are anti-fragile. I further suggest, as a result of that, that all counterinsurgencies, most or all counterinsurgencies, are fragile enterprises. And I will explain all of that during this episode. A couple more examples so that we can get this anti-fragility framework fully and in, in, um, in, uh, intellectually comprehended by, by everybody here. Evolution, for instance. Whatever your take on evolution, let's suppose that you don't believe evolution exists, or let's suppose that you do, or let's suppose you're a skeptic, or you believe it's the results of good scientific methodology. Nonetheless, all evolution means is that something responds to stressors by adapting over time so that those stressors make it stronger. Which brings us to another, even more simpler explanation of anti-fragility, and that will be muscle development. Those of us who go to the gym and those of us who have gone to the gym in the past, I'm smiling, what you discover is that you must, to a certain extent, destroy muscle stressors on the body in order to get better muscle or larger muscles or more effective and efficient muscles, whether it's going to be for weightlifting or running or whatever athletic experience it is any of you partake of, you discover that over time, as a result of stress and as a result of failure modes that we have recovered from, you get stronger and better at whatever athletic enterprise it is that you're participating in. And there's the predator and prey symbiosis. You discover that there are certain anti-fragile instantiations in how predators will adapt and evolve over time and how their prey will adapt and evolve over time. I live in the desert Southwest and when you travel in the desert southwest, you don't want to go barefoot. And when you're in the wilds of the desert southwest, everything, flora and fauna, wants to poison you, pinch you, sting you, stick you, cripple you, or whatever may be the case. These are systems of defense that have evolved over time 
and been adapted over time by various modalities of organic symbiosis in which they have achieved a relative balance in their ability not only to prosper in the wild, but to survive in the wild. So let's get to the meat of the matter, irregular warfare. In this case today, we're going to discuss counterinsurgency and insurgency. In the first charter episode of this podcast, I discussed some terminological and technical vocabulary frameworks for what our discussions are going to be in the episodes that I plan on doing fortnightly well into the future. So with that, one of the characteristics of anti-fragility in terms of at least some kinds of insurgency bears a keen resemblance to that of wicked problems. Wicked problems are those problems in the scientific community or even the defense community where I've been in which they are very complex problems that either demand complex solution sets or simple solution sets. For instance, let's do a thought experiment here. I happen to be tremendously skeptical of the anachronism, as I call it, of carrier aviation, a U.S. naval carrier, and carrier forces in the globe in the 21st century. I think it's a very expensive anachronism, much like I think manned tank warfare is, as we've discovered in the, uh, the 21st century. So what makes carrier aircraft and aviation strike packages and naval operations a wicked problem? What happens is it's a very platform-centric problem set. And what it demands is that you build these extraordinarily expensive platforms that integrated with all the other support, logistical, and combat support platforms, armadas that have to escort the carriers, the fact that the one-third rule demands that one-third of the carriers are in dry dock, one-third are training up, one-third and will be operational. What you discover is that these wicked problem sets depend on have these dependencies that are built into them. One of the dependencies for carrier aircraft is that they have to defend the very platform that they execute all their operations from. Hence, going back to the one-third rule, one-third of all available strike aircraft will be used to strike beyond the horizon, possibly depending on the range of the employed naval aviation on deck. Two-thirds of that will be doing one of two things. They will either be in maintenance or they will be providing what is referred to in Navy Argo as combat air patrols or barrier combat air patrols, which are more extended air patrols that are extended outside of the peripheral armada of the carrier and its supporting ships or the carriers and their supporting ships. These are wicked problem sets because what's happened now as a result of China doing the strategic calculus and saying, maybe we'll build one carrier, we probably won't build 12, but what we will do is we're going to build so many carriers, I mean so many missiles, I stand correct. The Chinese took the strategic calculus that they're not going to build the number of carriers to match that of the West. They are going to build enough missiles so that these carriers become missile sponges. And to riff back to what the IRA told Margaret Thatcher, you have to be right all the time. We just have to be right once. Hence, if one, two, or three of the missile swarms that come in to attack the carrier and the escort ships escorting said carrier in the armada is hit, one doesn't have to sink the carrier. 
All one has to do is put one of the propeller, propeller screws out of action so that it can't get forward speed or put a five degree list and then it can't launch aircraft nor retrieve them safely or effectively. That's an example of a wicked problem set. When it comes to insurgency, these wicked problem sets start to present themselves in very unique fashions. For instance, if one were to, and we're gonna cover this in detail in the future because I take a chainsaw to the British notion that their counterinsurgency is the most superior model in the West. When one examines it and breaks it down, and we will do a review of Douglas Porch's book on counterinsurgency, exposing the myths of the new way of war, we will discover that when one looks at the history of the British, it's almost 180 degrees out of what their claims are to what actually occurred in Malaya, Oman, and other places where they claim victory. By the way, they also claim victory in Ireland. I think that would be a victory that I would not want to claim at all. But nonetheless, what it means is that there is a notion in the irregular warfare war that external support, which in the case of Malay in the 1950s, in which the British were trying to take the country back from communist insurgents in Malaya proper, they cut off all the external support and thought that they would strangle it in the bed. What we're discovering now in examination of both historical and contemporary insurgencies is that they don't necessarily need a tremendous amount of external support. In the unique framework that we have with Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, Yes, indeed, Pakistan has provided a significant amount of monies, resources, and materiel to the resistance and the insurgencies in Afghanistan. Let's take a quick note here. Many people think that the Taliban is the primary vector of resistance in Afghanistan proper and has been for 20 years. That is not the case. There are hundreds of insurgencies in Afghanistan because Afghanistan as a country doesn't exist outside the, the city of Kabul. All of those clans, blood clans, familial relationships, hundreds of years of relationships that have been forged, especially through smuggling, for instance, between Pakistan and all the contiguous states, as a matter of fact, to include China. Afghanistan has been a country that hasn't really needed a tremendous amount of support from Pakistan or whatever to continue its fight against both the Russians in the 1980s from 1979 to 1989, nor from the Americans. What you'll discover is the Afghan resistance would be a suboptimal military force without the vast amount of Western and U.S. aid passing through the hands of Pakistan, through the Kabul regime, through all the resistance forces, and through their very sophisticated and decades-long smuggling efficacy. You know, what I discover is that you don't necessarily need the external sanctuaries that we had in the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century. Many of these external sanctuaries don't even need a physical touch. What would it take, for instance, to send monies or to engage in cybersecurity or to engage in cyber or media narratives one doesn't need to do anything outside of a computer keyboard and having the necessary connections to make it so. So an insurgency's claim to being anti-fragile may rest as much or more upon the general political and socioeconomic environment being relatively chaotic 
than on the nature of the insurgent organization itself, or insurgent organizations, since many of them work together. The Chinese, Russian, Lebanese civil wars, uh, Mexico's narco-insurgency, thanks to America's drug war, Horn of Africa and Afghanistan in the 1990s, the Congo Basin and Iraq in the 2000s, all had polycentric and disordered environments that allowed irregular groups to rapidly rise and fall on a local and regional basis. By contrast, bilateral insurgency versus state dynamics can stabilize conflict for decades. There's a number of factors of why an insurgency, a homegrown insurgency, has a home team advantage, has a home turf advantage. In the case of Afghanistan, in the case of the third world and the developing world, even in the case of fairly developed countries like Mexico, if they know the terrain, they know the narratives, and they know the people who live there, in this case, having a very good cultural IQ about what makes that particular society click, that gives them a tremendous advantage. Let's examine an insurgency fundamental here, and that would be the three legs of a successful insurgency. And of course, there may be other legs or more minor things that one could attach to this, but let's look at those three. Those three would be narrative, perceived, and real grievances, and legitimacy. We'll tackle those one at a time. Narrative is a combination of what is the homegrown cultural IQ and knowledge of what makes that particular society work, perceived and real grievances would be what are the grievances that have instantiated and caused that insurgency to take wing and be successful and start to gain power and strength over time. And legitimacy. As a result of the first two, especially the second, legitimacy is something that depends on what is the people's perception of the success of that insurgency to right wrongs that they have perceived themselves. Now, what's really interesting about all of this is that I would suggest for the counterinsurgents out there in the counterinsurgent community, there's a golden hour that occurs when in a counterinsurgency is attempted against an insurgency. And that is where one, through having their finger on the pulse or taking the determination through intelligence or observation, you discover that an equal part of the population starts to support the counterinsurgents and another equal part of the population continues to support the insurgents. This, in my examination of history, and contemporary events is a fleeting time. And if you don't take that immediately, all of a sudden, the insurgency itself, in this case, the homegrown antagonists who are fighting either the present government or the ones who have flown in through an invasion or occupation process, like the West has done in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and the Horn of Africa, what you discover is that you'll never get that back again. Have we been able to take advantage of that particular golden hour? Not that I've seen, but as I've mentioned before, I welcome correction and a new interpretation of the history 
that shows me where I may have been in error. So continuing on with those three legs, again, those three legs are narrative, grievances, and legitimacy. Those three things are the primary venue and ecology that a successful insurgency must leverage and use effectively to achieve their ends. And as I mentioned in episode one, you have two ends in an insurgency. Either you seek out a sovereign part of the territory or you're trying to wrest control of the entire country so that you take over the government itself. It goes without saying that there's a tremendous amount of fluidity to these processes. And one thing I want to emphasize is that not all insurgent organizations can remain anti-fragile over time. The more they become acquainted with conventional formations and starting to field conventional formations, the more fragile they will become. Two examples of this, of course, would be North Vietnam, which did ultimately succeed in morphing from a more insurgent structure to a more conventional structure, or Hezbollah. The Hezbollah organization, it, these organizations can restructure themselves over time. Hezbollah may be an example where we have a subnational entity that starts to accept greater fragility in order to acquire state-like hierarchical advantages, for instance, like political discipline and state violence. So fragile does not necessarily mean weak. It means vulnerable to fracture. I repeat, if you remember anything from this podcast, please burn this into your mind. Fragile does not necessarily mean weak. It means vulnerable to fracture. Because states can be very strong in concentrating massive amounts of resources and coercive force. As a matter of fact, in the history of manned warfare, East and West, one can say that the concentration of force at the right time with the right mix of force against forces that may be inferior, for the most part, will probably end in victory for the former instead of the latter. Now, of course, we have exceptions to that, like what happened at Rourke's Drift or in Kasari. Now, but they're strangely vulnerable to internal coups, popular uprisings, economic collapse, what I call strategic deficit disorder, and natural disasters. What strategic deficit disorder is, it's this kind of, and we're going to cover this in full in an episode in the future, is a phrase that I've coined to describe what occurs when one uses budget to determine strategy or one takes on a task that is so large, for instance, the U.S. conceit since 1945 of being a global hegemon and not a regional hegemon, in order to take advantage of, in this case, scales of size, scalability to be able to control small or large swaths beyond the can of the state. Historically, the British were able to do this, but the British did a very curious thing that has never been emulated by the United States Empire. What the British would do, and this sort of echoes what the Romans did, is they instantiated a tremendous effort to ensure that conquered peoples had a stake in the bureaucracy, a stake in the work that, that was being done, and a stake in putting their shoulder to the wheel, even in uniform, to achieve the greater 
state goals of, in this case, the Romans or the British Empire. For instance, when you look at the Raj from its formation in the beginning of the, at the middle of the 18th century until the middle of the 20th century, there were very few English-born white Englishmen who were in control of the vast bureaucracies in the Indian subcontinent at the time. One could suppose that there was probably 90% plus who were quite literally locals who had a stake in the bureaucracy because they were members of the bureaucracy and shared in the fruits of such an enterprise. So here's what we have today. One of the great dangers today are complex systems that combine enormous power with extreme fragility. Small disruptions by irregular forces yield huge ROIs. That's returns on investment. So let's take um, two examples here. One's an economic example, the next one would be a martial example. The economic example is that in 2000 and 2009, we had a major economic malfunction in the United States and the West as a result of malinvestment and perverse incentives to invest in things that could not possibly yield. In this case, a number of factors were proximate causes and root causes. One could suppose the root cause of what happened in 2000 and 2000, 2008 and 2009, in which we had these very toxic bond holdings that were given a value way beyond what they should have been because those bonds and real estate issuances were based on a large majority of people who could not pay back their loans. 1977, and then in the 1980s and the 1990s, we had various advocates in the U.S. federal government who said that as a result of historical redlining by banks and not offering loans to lower socioeconomic strata, we are going to relax the standards to which these people can apply to get a home and allow people to actually purchase a home with insufficient income and the basic needs to meet a mortgage to get a home. Hence, the chickens came to roost in 2008 and 2009, and in a combination of federal brilliance in not only what they had adopted for homes, but what they had adopted as macroeconomic policy with the fiat currency at the time, they refused to do the right thing, and we had a collapse. Well, let's move on to a Marshall example. A Marshall example would be a Marshall example would be our huge catastrophic marriage to Afghanistan over the past 20 years, which ended last August as a result of the present junta in the United States pulling out of the, the country. Well, what happened during that entire time? Well, what happened is, and this you will find is historically and contemporaneously, a Western motif in the way it conducts insurgency. The more women and children that you maim and kill, the more men who drive insurgencies. You will drive into insurgencies and resistance organizations in a given country. None of this is unique to Afghanistan, but it is unique because Afghanistan is a country that is different from others. Mm -hmm. And when you combine Islam and you combined a country that is beyond third world or developing. Afghanistan has always 
struggled to come into the 20th century, much less the 21st century, you start to match these martial cultures to their religious imprimaturs, and then you start to see that, well, they're going to resist. One could say that given a country, especially third world and developing countries, that is invaded by a Western nation. And by the way, I want to provide this proviso. I say Western nation because my knowledge of Eastern nations and insurgency and counterinsurgency is not as good as it is about Western. So I'm going to emphasize Western insurgency and counterinsurgency. In this case, what it means is that if you conduct the war in the fashion that we did in Afghanistan, where one parks this huge Western Death Star over the country, emphasizes everything that's happening in the capital city of Kabul as a way of rippling out all of these new instantiations of Western power and suffrage and governance and regulatory agencies and all those kind of things. What you're going to get is you're providing stressors on a society that has existed the way it has for hundreds, one could say thousands of years, but we'll go with hundreds of years. These stressors made the Taliban stronger. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, resistance organizations were manifest and many in Afghanistan. You had the Haqqani Network. You had um, the uh, AQN in Kabul. You had Jundula, where I was near the Uzbeki border up in the northern reaches of Afghanistan in the Himalayan foothills. All of these were pretty difficult to staff with personnel. But with the invasion, like the Russian invasion, like the British invasion, the Afghans have this characteristic in which they run to the insurgent flagpole to fight any invaders that they have. Like, like I've mentioned before, you will not best 20% of a given country that's invaded because there will be 10% of the people in the invaded country who will always resist. And the only way to stop them from resisting is killing them. It's strategic whack-a-mole and inevitably women and children are maimed and killed and inevitably, especially in a country like Afghanistan, where three or four generations live under the same roof voluntarily. It's part of their culture. It's unlike America, because in America, if that thing that were to happen and one were to hit a suburban home, and a lot of the neighbors would be appalled at that, but they don't have the blood and familial connections that one would find in Afghanistan. In other words, when you hit one house in Afghanistan, you are hitting hundreds of houses in Afghanistan. You are also hitting them in a culture that takes great pride and takes great honor in adhering to a culture that avenges grievances that have been visited upon them. And they will avenge these grievances for years, decades, and possibly for centuries. Sort of like the Hatfields and McCoys on steroids. So again, anti-fragility is always to the advantage of the insurgency for a variety of reasons. You know, states might be able to seek a strategic advantage over insurgencies by improving their robustness and to smother the relatively ineffectual kinetic attacks of guerrillas or the subset of terrorists with inertia, refusing to energize the growth of an anti-fragile 
insurgent opponent, maybe starving them of material resources and political oxygen. You know, India has trucked along with this with hundreds of ongoing insurgencies and episodic acts of major terrorism, not to mention what's happening on the border with Pakistan, in which they've been on a virtual hot war footing since the 19, late 1950s. But for decades, the, the Indian state has not even remotely been in jeopardy of being overthrown by, say, the Naxalites, which is one of the largest ones, or the Sikh extremists, or the Kashmiri Islamists most of them uh, near near Pakistan. But you compare that with the rapid collapse or retreat of the state in places like Somalia, Yemen, Libya, Mali, and so on. And what you discover is that there is no single best way to prosecute a counterinsurgency. And that's what the West is discovering, who have been participating in these things for decades, if not hundreds of years. There are instances historically where insurgencies have been crushed despite their anti-fragility. I would point to the 18th and 19th century American aboriginals and the consistent fight by first the British government and the French government, and then after 1783, the American government to take on the aboriginal insurgents from coast to coast in America. We will examine that in a future episode or two. Look, one of the bottom lines here is that the effects of globalization and information technology is yielding decentralized, fast-evolving insurgencies. It gives power to insurgencies becoming anti-fragile. At a minimum, it greatly improves the odds of their ability to win. I'll give you another, for instance, in Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and the Horn of Africa, especially in Afghanistan, is the narrative focus of trying to leverage every IED incident committed by the Taliban, Jundala, AQN, even in, in other environments like Hezbollah and such. When they conduct IED attacks, they always have a videographer with them. When they have completed the IED attack and it ends in, you know, people's lives being taken or great injury or machinery being destroyed or trucks, vehicles and tanks being destroyed, they immediately within 24 to 48 hours have taken that video back. They've done their editing. They've added their music. They've added their home turf advantage with their cultural IQ and they produce what is in essence recruiting videos and videos that really put the steel into the spine of ever resistance they're serving. Let's step back 100 years. Let's go to what I refer to as peak guerrilla, 1916 to 1918. And again, as I've said, I feel like I'm a uh, show promoter for my future episodes, but I can't help it because there's so much to cover in so little time. I call it peak guerrilla from 1916 to 1922. And I showcase three gentlemen, Michael Collins of the... Irish Republican Brotherhood, later the Irish Republican Army, in the fight in air from the rising in 1916 until their settlement with Great Britain in 1922. We have Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck, who in November 1918 stands as the only undefeated general officer in the German army remaining on planet Earth. And of course, all of us know from either the movie or reading or just general 
cultural knowledge, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. This is peak gorilla, and I would suggest to you that they took full advantage of my anti-fragile notions. Remember, I haven't invented this. Taleb didn't invent this. All we've done is we've discovered an explanatory framework for why some things work the way they do. And I find that the anti-fragile model is a very interesting model to use to demonstrate why these insurgencies tend to be anti-fragile. We've got a number of factors here. Who knows terrain better? the people who live there, the people who own it. I often tell my boys that when you look at conflict and military history throughout time, it's usually always been a contest of angles, whether physical, virtual, intellectual, those kind of things. It's a contest of tribal knowledge. It's a contest of force ratios, jungle telegraphs, and imperial exhaustion. And I would urge you to consider that when it comes to anti-fragility, it's all about what I like to put in capital letters, the ripple, which means that what appear to be very discreet and minor events have tremendous rippling and butterfly effects to the larger conflict. When I did my master's thesis, I did my master's thesis on Michael Collins, the IRA, and why the cessation of World War I, the absolute prostration of the English at the time in debt and imperial exhaustion, and what occurred at a little province in India called Jaliwaliba, all congealed, these minor rippling effects, all congealed to allow this 800-year occupation by the British of Ireland, in this case, the island of what we know, now know as Eyre, E-I-R-E, not the six counties that comprise the still United Kingdom occupation of Northern Ireland. Michael Collins, who we will be chatting about at length in the future, was able in November 1920 to execute a coordinated assassination campaign against what was referred to as the castle, which were the leading investigators and provocateurs sent by London to put the Irish insurgency down, he managed in one morning to eliminate all of them, all of them at the same time. Now, this instance, including the Black and Tan's brutal British response to the population at large at the time, all of these factors, including the ones I mentioned about the slaughter by the British of thousands of Indians at Jaliwaliba by General Dyer in 1919, led to this confluence of events. Now, Winston Churchill gave what I consider the greatest speech of his entire career. And I have to tell you, just as a side note, I... I am a reluctant Anglophile, and I find Winston Churchill is such a conflicted figure for me to admire and honor. There's no doubt that the man was a rhetorician of the highest order, maybe one of the greatest rhetoricians that humanity has ever delivered to the world stage. But nonetheless, he was an unapologetic imperialist, militarist, and his incompetence at certain times makes it extraordinary for me to think that 
as a result of this huge train of incompetence that comprised his especially military career that he ascended to the world stage as the prime minister during the war to save Joseph Stalin from 1939 to 1945. What I discover is that as a result of what I consider his finest speech, his Amritsar speech, please, Kenneth Branagh, if you could record that, I would be obliged. His Amritsar speech was extraordinary, not only in its rhetorical power, but the fact that he condemned what happened in India. He condemned General Dyer's behavior in literally slaughtering hundreds, what amounted to thousands, of Indians who were unarmed at the time in Jaliwalibau. So here's my supposition. As a result of that slaughter, that speech, the assassination on Bloody Sunday by Michael Collins, the imperial exhaustion, World War I's indebtedness, what World War I had done to the British islands and the British Commonwealth, all of these came to a fore because all of those were part of the very fragile framework that combined and composed the British Empire at the time. The anti-fragile framework was Michael Collins being able to concentrate and focus in the small island due southwest of England proper, all of his means, his savvy, his intelligence, and of course the work of the IRB and the IRAs and the flying columns and such, to finally wrest that settlement from England to free them from English occupation that had been there for 800 years. I like to use this as an example of how anti-fragile an insurgency can be. One can see the same thing where I'd mentioned Emil von Leto Vorbeck, the German general down in Germany, East Africa, what we know as Tanzania today and what he was able to do. And yes, we are going to cover this in the future because his story, all these stories, is just fascinating. And what he did was he managed to take 10,000 or less German Schutztruppe, who were white officered blacks for the most part, and best a Western army that was fielded against him that, at its peak, had half a million men, and I think if I recall, up to 50, 55 general officers trying to hunt him down, neutralize him, and stop him. They didn't. He was able to do this tremendous campaign for several years in Africa where not only did he evade, he raided, he harassed, and he really did conduct, I think, an insurgency for the ages when it came to the contratemp to the counterinsurgency and some of the conventional operations that the Allied forces were trying to array against him in Africa. We will treat Leto Vorbeck with a far deeper examination in the future. And then finally, we have T.E. Lawrence in my trio of peak guerrilla characters from 1916 to 1922. And what these guys, and you know, as a matter of fact, we are going to do an episode on Pete Gorilla. So T.E. Lawrence, of course, if you know from the film, 1962, David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia, my number one film of all time. A lot of historical license and, and artistic license taken with that, rather ahistorical in some ways, but extraordinarily true in other ways. I, 
I, I thought that O'Toole in his first starring role did an amazing job of portraying the Lawrence that I know from literature and from history and from primary and secondary source documentation. He was able, through a very anti-fragile insurgency, in this case, the Bedouin tribes of Arabia, to do an end run around the Turkish formations using, to uh, infer Dune here, desert power and desert knowledge to do things that Western countries and armies, like the Turks in this case, who were there in Saudi Arabia and its contiguous states at the time, was able to do things that they couldn't possibly pull off, especially as larger conventional formations. You know, we'd see a bit of this in the long-range desert reconnaissance groups by the emerging Special Air Service of the British Armed Forces in 1941, 42, and 43, fighting the Germans in Africa. We would see sort of a manifestation of these kind of hit-and-run, run, raid, ambuscade techniques, things like that, that were employed by Lawrence. And again, we are going to do a probably two-episode treatment of T.E. Lawrence because it bears a whole lot of examination. So again, these three characters from a century ago, a lot of those lessons, if I may ripple forward in time to what we're doing today, and I would classify all three of these gentlemen as practicing anti-fragility in their insurgency and leveraging and exploiting the very fragile instantiations and characteristics of their foes. Okay, so what's the future tense for insurgency? Here's the sad fact. America, I would go so far as to say most of the West, hasn't conducted a successful counterinsurgency campaign since the end of World War II. Now, can one say that America conducted successful counterinsurgency campaigns against the Aboriginal Americans in the 18th, 19th, and, by the way, part of the early 20th century? The answer to that may be a qualified yes, which is why I use the proviso America hasn't conducted a successful counterinsurgency since the end of World War II. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, no Islamic insurgency has been defeated since 1945. Isn't that interesting? We're going to examine all these things in depth in the future. And of course, I mentioned earlier, I take a chainsaw to the British coin mythos. I consider it a phantasm because there's no success that one can look at after World War II in British prosecution of coin, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Oman, whether it's in Malaya, whether it's in Ireland, you name it, that it simply isn't there. I'm wide open to listeners coming back to me and, and proffering evidence of British success in doing that. So far, if I've seen in my readings and my surveys, I haven't found it. And also, there's the fragility of first world technological forces. When you make a platform-centric organization the primary means by which you are going to fight all of your near-peer and peer wars, you find that those aren't very well accommodated to fighting the wars that America has been fighting for nearly a quarter century since the beginning of this new millennium has started. 
There's a lot of reasons for that. I've covered a considerable amount of those over the body of this podcast. So what I want to leave you with is this. Anti-fragility, as Taleb has discovered, and as the rest of us have taken a look at, is the existence of an ecology that gets stronger under pressure with time and under stress. When it comes to insurgencies, historically, what we discover is those, even without significant external support, can survive for years and such. And by the way, there's two standards by which we have to measure the success of an insurgency. One of the subsidiary standards is, well, how long did it last? And number two, did they succeed at what they sought to do? And of course, that's what future episodes are going to try to answer in this podcast series. The converse, of course, is that I have to call attention to the very fragility of our large systems that we have now in the West. Christian Bros has written a book called Kill Chains, in which he talks about the emerging peer and near-peer fight that we have, that we need to go away from platform-centric large aircraft, aircraft carriers, tanks, and those kind of things, to more network-centric, which we can give a wink and a nod to Nathan Bedford Forrest from the Second American Revolution and the American Civil War, in which getting there with the fastest, the mostest, the bestest, and being able to prosecute in time and use that shock and awe effectively is the way to do this. But in order for one to do that, you have to harness your targeting and your lethality in a single seamless network and despite U.S. technology and despite the nearly $1 trillion that the United States spends on its defense establishment, we aren't there yet. Here's what we have. The insurgency and the counterinsurgency dialectic provides a scheme to map the strengths and weaknesses of this intersection of those two methodologies. I find that historically the insurgency has been much more adaptive to counterinsurgency efforts and overcoming conflict dynamics that emerge to favor strategic compression on the part of the insurgent. Strategic compression is achieving strategic objectives with tactical means, which is a hallmark of Western special operations forces like special forces, rangers, uh, air force and Navy elements, and their Western counterparts in the UK, Germany, and other countries. The coin calculations tend to be wildly optimistic and they're unmatched by success once on the ground. So here are my two closing thoughts. I think the anti-fragility modeling of insurgency forces and the concomitant fragility modeling of counterinsurgent forces would be useful to scholars and practitioners of irregular warfare to examine, weigh the evidence, read the literature, think about it, come to their own conclusions. And my second thought, of course, is that if the model withstands scrutiny and it turns out that anti-fragility and the conduct of insurgencies is a going concern and an effective means of prosecuting them to success, Maybe, just maybe, counterinsurgent forces, larger conventional forces, and forces across the spectrum of conflict in the West should examine what they could take from that to make their martial efforts more effective. 
All right. That wraps up this episode, and I plan on doing these episodes fortnightly. I look forward to comments and constructive criticism at the email I mentioned before, which again is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. I leave you with this quote by T.E. Lawrence. Nine-tenths of tactics are certain and taught in books, but the irrational tenth is like the kingfisher flashing across the pool, and that is the test of generals. End of quote. Thanks for listening to Chasing Ghost and a Regular Warfare podcast. This is Bill, out. <laughs>